Amen. Thank you, Dave. Uh, Mark, uh, I know you've joined us, Mark and Michelle, so uh, love to hear how God is at work there. Feel free to share on the feed. Thank you also to all of us who joined on, all of you who've joined on YouTube. Uh, failed to mention that a while ago. And then I know there are quite a few folks who watch this later. And so if you're one of them who watches later, thank you for tuning in down down the way um, when it's better for you, for your family, or for your work situation, whatever it may be. Thank you for doing that. Uh, a disclaimer before I jump into the sermon, I preached the sermon before. I seldom uh, redo a sermon, but uh, really felt I should. I can't remember, maybe a couple years ago, I uh, wrote the sermon and preached it before. And so if you are a copious note taker, you're going to see some things, uh, perhaps in your Bibles. I know some of you jot things down there, so perhaps you'll see some things that will jog your memory. And so just think of it as a good meal that, that's worth cooking again. And, um, and so we're going to talk about worry this morning. And uh, I'm uh, very much indebted to D.A. Carson's work on worry. As a matter of fact, I have uh, his uh, uh, exposition, his commentary on Matthew 5 through 10. And D.A. Carson, such a brilliant biblical scholar, balanced. um, And I'll lean in on him this morning uh, for a couple of pieces of this. And I realize that when I preach a sermon on worry, it hits different people differently And uh, I want to read what D.A. Carson says about that because he touches on how the different people are touched. He says, picture three people. The first is a happy-go-lucky, cheerful, almost irresponsible person. He rarely gets anything done and never gets anything done on time. He doesn't worry about the next five minutes, let alone tomorrow. Responsibility he wears too lightly. Life is a lark. If he is a Christian, it is very difficult to get him to work faithfully at any task. He probably won't cause any tension by stooping to bitterness or vindictiveness. Everybody knows him as a nice guy. On the other hand, he remains insensitive to the needs and feelings of others and is consistently carefree about the spiritual lostness of millions of people. The second person is almost hyper-responsible. He takes grief uh, and burden seriously. If there is any trouble, he frets so much over it that he produces outsized ulcers. The state of the economy is a constant weight on his mind. Not only does he worry about tomorrow, he wonders how he'll make it out or make out when he retires in 42 years. He may spread the objects of his worry around so that every bit of bad news or even a whiff of potentially bad news prompts a new outbreak of anxiety. Or he may focus his worry, inflated sense of responsibility on a few restricted areas with the result that he utterly excludes other people and topics. The third person is a balanced and sane young Christian, noteworthy for his integrity and disciplined hard work. Married with two children, he has supported them faithfully while he tries to finish his doctorate. With about one year to go, he wakes up one night to discover that his wife can't speak and can't move her right side. A brain tumor is discovered, but major major surgery proves useless. The doctor tells the young man that the recovery period will be lengthy and will not return his wife to normal strength and mental clarity in any case. In fact, the prognosis is three years, during which time she will become more and more like a vegetable, and then she will die. These three people hear some preacher use Matthew 6 as the basis for a long sermon on the wickedness of worry. 
The preacher says that worry involves distrust in God, and this is shameful. How will each react? The first will be quite happy. He always knew that other people were too uptight all the time. Why bother studying so hard for an A? Just passing the course is good enough. Why get so hung up with binding commitments? He's happy and free and cheerfully obeying the Lord's injunction not to worry. The second may feel quite rebuked by the sermon. He knows it is for him. He worries that he has been denying the Lord and despairs of himself and his sins. Quite without any sense of irony, he begins to worry about worry. The third person listens to the sermon. And unless he is remarkably mature and full of grace, bitterly sneers under his breath something to the effect that the preacher should watch his own wife die before venturing on so difficult a subject. And if this third man is tired and feeling a trifle vindictive, he may start to tick off on his mental fingers a few of the things that somebody, well, ought to start worrying about. Man number three hears such an injunction and weighs it against the gnawing anxieties which plague the spirit and endanger health, and he mutters, you don't understand, it can't be done. So I realize when I begin to preach a sermon on worry that you will fall into one of these categories. Perhaps you're happy-go-lucky and you're like, yep, people ought to do exactly what you're saying. Or perhaps you're what is termed a worry wart and guilt will ensue. Or maybe your response, your first honest response could be anger. My goal is that you will see God in a new light this morning, not worry. My goal is not to uh, dissect what worry is and how to avoid it. My goal is to take your glance and raise it upward and see God as you perhaps never have. D.A. Carson also writes, there is a sense in which worry is not only good, but its absence is, biblically speaking, irresponsible. There is a sense in which worry is not only evil, but its presence signifies unbelief and disobedience. This is the subject we're addressing this morning. So I'm going to tell you, based on God's word here, Jesus' own words, three different ways not to worry. Don't worry a theological argument. Therefore, Jesus says, why is the therefore there? Jesus has just made the statement, you can't serve God and wealth. He's calling the people to a decision between the two. And in his crowd are poor people who don't know how they are going to make ends meet. And in his crowd are wealthy people. So his audience is comprised of the poor. It is comprised of the wealthy. So Jesus goes from excess to necessities. And necessities are going to involve both the poor and the wealthy. He tells them not to be anxious about food, water, and clothes. All of us need all three. If you're poor, you've got to have food to eat. 
water to drink, and clothes to put on your body. And if you're wealthy, you've got to have food to eat, water to drink, and clothes to put on your body. So what does he say? Look at verse 26. This is, don't worry, a theological argument. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. And yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? I'm afraid we read this and immediately naturally focus on our value. However, we cannot understand our value without understanding Jesus' statement about the Father. God feeds birds. You can't lose sight of that. That this morning, your heavenly Father has been feeding birds. I'm not making light. I'm speaking what Jesus says here. So let me lean in on D.A. Carson for a moment. You're going to see four symbols and four uh, phrases on the screen. This is where you'll want to jot things down. And I'll tell you what we'll do. We'll get my sermon notes somewhere, maybe on the Facebook, YouTube, or maybe on our website under uh, the resource page so that you can go back and you can see all the detail. Uh, Carson says there are four ways to view the universe, and the way in which you view it determines how you approach God and what's happening right now in our world. The first is an open universe. In an open universe, the G's represent God's, whatever they may be. If you are in Africa, if you are in other parts of the world, this could be multiple God's. Uh, multiple spirits, whatever they may be. The bottom of the diagram is the physical universe, those slanted lines running down. The lines going up, the arrows, are your and my attempt to appease the gods. In this universe, everything is chance. Nothing happens on purpose. This would be a true atheistic point of view. There is no God. There is no order. Everything happens by chance. You will find this in in the uh, animistic places where there are multiple spirits, multiple gods, an open universe. Second view, a closed universe. You see a circle with arrows. Everything in the circle is life. Everything in the circle can be and must be explained. Atheistic scientists make this argument. If we don't know it, it's because we haven't studied it enough. There is nothing more than matter, energy, and space. Think cause and effect. There is a cause and there is effect. So there is a closed universe. It can be and must be explained. View number three, at first it seems to be an improvement. Same closed universe, God inside. All right, so same closed universe, God inside. He is the center of things. But it isn't very different because God is merely part of the mechanism. Think new age, 
Think spirituality. Think God is my friend. Think God is my buddy. Think that way. Deism. People believe there is a God, but the God is not personally involved here. Uh, They refer to God as a being or a higher power. That's the third view. It's the alteration to a closed universe. And then finally, you get a controlled universe. Here you see the universe represented by the circle, life. Everything in it is happening. God is sovereignly above it. There are scientific laws. Doesn't deny that. There is cause and effect. There is an intelligent design. Study it. Jump into it. Figure out everything you can figure out. But if God is above it and around it and by his omnipresence also in it, we call it in theology the transcendence of God, his aboveness, his otherness, and the imminence of God, his being near. If he is, then all of it is his design. If all of it is his design, then there can be something called a miracle. A miracle is when God interrupts the order. It's when the cause doesn't result in the effect. When God steps in and does something that only he can get the credit for, that is this view. God then acts freely to set aside or to do away with or abolish a natural law altogether ever or for a particular time and place in history. Think the crossing of the Red Sea. Think Jonah in the belly of the fish. Think Jesus rising from the dead. Why go into all of this? Because I'm afraid our worry is founded in our misunderstanding of who God is. I ask you this morning, where do you find yourself? Are you in the first diagram trying to win the favor of God, shooting these prayers, these efforts, these acts up to a God that you or gods that you hope are going to come through for you? In the United States, those gods could easily be labeled the stock market. Those gods could easily be labeled our health. Those gods could easily be labeled the things that we can hold dear, entertainment, those kinds of things. I would say a theological statement can be summarized by this one sentence. Don't worry, God feeds the birds. Don't worry, God feeds the birds. In that large, massive universe, tiny little birds matter. Uh, Let's look at a logical argument. Don't worry, a a logical argument. Matthew 6, 27, and which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? 
Now, some translations render this can add a cubit or 18 inches to his height. Both are ludicrous. Logically, worry cannot accomplish the energy that you spend on it. You can't add a single hour to your life by worrying. In 2017, an article published by Harvard Health suggested a connection between anxiety and intestinal, heart, and respiratory disease. Worry is destructive. Most of Jesus' audience would have been what are called amorets. They were the commoners of the day. Here's how they worked. They got up in the morning, went to a place where they hoped to find work, waited until they found it, worked that day, bought food for that evening and the next day, and went back and did it again and again and again. We talk about living paycheck to paycheck, which means for some people week to week, uh, two weeks to two weeks, month to month, they lived day to day. That is Jesus' audience. Don't forget that. Why does Jesus say to them, the, to them not to worry? Worry won't get them a job tomorrow. Worry won't put food on their table. Worry cannot add a single hour to their life. If you consider the average lifespan of around 70 years, then that is 613,200 hours of life. Jesus says, you cannot, by worrying, add a single hour to that. That single hour is the number on the screen, 0.0000163%. That's logically how ineffective your worry is. Charles Spurgeon said, anxiety does not empty tomorrow of its sorrows, but only empties today of its strength. So true. Don't worry, God feeds the birds. Don't worry, it doesn't work. It's a logical argument. It doesn't work. Jesus is being so logical here. Third, don't worry, a philosophical argument. So we've got a theological argument, a logical argument, and a philosophical argument in this tiny section of the greatest sermon ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus goes on, and why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? What Jesus employs here was a common philosophical argument in his day, greater to lesser. If God so clothes the grass, will he not much more clothe you? 
He's already used this argument about the birds, and now he uses it about flowers compared to people. This leads me to one of my favorite verses of all times, Romans 8.32. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Meaning if God would give his only son, Jesus, will he not give everything else too? Paul is making, like Jesus did, this greater, the lesser argument. I have the privilege of serving at the EOC, the Emergency Operations Center, uh, just there several days a week for a couple of hours at a time. Great crew there. They're doing amazing work to keep us in this county safe. And they're a crazy crew, too, in a lot of ways. But yesterday was Will Keller's birthday, and so on Friday they celebrated, and they, to his surprise, all of his crew got him a mountain bike. His had gotten stolen, so they bought him a mountain bike. So they come rolling in with the mountain bike. Here it comes in. And he's totally surprised that everybody's celebrating, and he has a mountain bike. And I look, and hanging on the mountain bike is a helmet. Why? Well, you need to wear one if you're going to go mountain biking. And wouldn't it be crazy to get a whole bunch of people together to buy a mountain bike for however many hundreds of dollars that may have cost and not throw in 30 bucks for a helmet? That's what Jesus is saying. If God would do this and it is up here, will he not do this and this and this and this that's underneath? Will he not take care of all of this? I remember being a sophomore at Wofford and just didn't, didn't have money and tuition kept going up every year. And so they said, we want you to go meet with somebody who can help you out. Glad to do it. Walk across campus into the president's office. And as I walk by to go into my meeting, I look and see a car. And it just looks different. I'm like, what kind of car is that? So I went around to check in on it. And it's a Rolls Royce. And something told me that whoever was in there could help. If they had driven that car, they could help. And so I went and I sat down in front of a man named Mr. Hip. And Mr. Hip asked me a lot of questions. And meeting over, I left. It was a week, two. I don't know how long later I get word that Mr. Hip and another guy, they're going to give me the money not only to make up the difference of the increased tuition. But they just did some research and found out my total bill owed. And they said, we'll pay the entire difference. Well, the next year, my senior year, tuition went up again. Another $1,000. What did I do? 
are worried. What did they do? Wouldn't it be crazy for them to offer all that they had offered? Thought, think, we can't go that distance. It's a philosophical argument. But there's more. The example of Jesus is so profound. He who did not spare his own son, this one sentence tells us that God gave his best, his son, and his only. He had no other son. Every example I've shared is not somebody's best or their only. Every example, you, you can't find it. You go look and I think, how can I illustrate this? How can I bring this home? There are no other examples in history of somebody who gave their best and their only, their best and their only. For someone who did not love them in the first place, who did not care for them in the first place, who sinned, who who went against him. So how do you respond? This is a philosophical argument. If God would give you his best and his only, he will also give you the lesser things. Therefore, here's another therefore. In light of that God, do not worry. Do not be anxious saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. You see, the God outside of that circle is not only God, but he's your Father. He's your heavenly Father. He loves you more than you love your own kids. The Gentiles seek after. That that word means to crave. Pagans crave food, drink, and clothes. The average American household spends $3,000 a year eating out. The average American family spends $1,700 a year on clothes. That's why this has created such an economic effect. We crave things. And for some of us, our craving has been called out. It is being tested. So what does Jesus say to do? But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. Seek is a present command, an unceasing quest. Now, I want you to notice something. He doesn't say seek only. He says seek first. You will, by necessity, seek work. You better If you don't work, it's in Scripture, you don't eat. You will, by necessity, need to seek to save money. 
And everybody will be thrilled if you, by necessity, seek to clothe yourself. You need to do that. Just not first. So how do you do that? You do it with a simple, I'm just going to give you a simple strategy. And I'm going to say, if it is not natural to you, it's not natural to any of us, but if you've not made it habitual, you will discover that it will fight against your norm. Pray first, act second. It was Monday. I left the EOC, and I was navigating a major problem-solving situation. And it was hammering me, hammering me. I just, Monday morning, finished reviewing this sermon, and I get on the interstate, and when I do, the Holy Spirit says, do you remember what you're preaching Sunday? (laughs) And all of a sudden, I was like, ah, I'm so in problem-solve mode. And so I said to myself, get that out of your mind. And I began to pray. And as I began to pray, I'm driving up the interstate and I said, Lord, I have no idea. But I tell you that one, I know that one ounce of worry will not add a single uh, thing to the solution of this problem. I cannot worry this into existence. I'm preaching that Sunday. Father, I can't worry this into existence. So, Lord, it's yours. And, Lord, I know me. And I know as soon as I finish this prayer that my mind is going to kick into action mode. And, Lord, I'm going to give it to you. And I know me. And I prayed all the way home. I get home. I'm waiting on news that I need to give insight and answers. So I have a choice. I can wait anxiously by my phone, right? And worry. Or I needed to mow grass. I said, all right, Lord, put the phone down. I'm going to mow and pray. Mow and pray. I will not worry. I'm just going to tell you it was a battle. It was real. It was not easy. It does not come natural to me. I'm assuming it doesn't come natural to you. Seems like a simple, simple thing. So what I want you to do is to pray and then act. Pray and then act. Pray and then act. You say, well, Jay, what if if I pray and it comes right back? The word seek means an unceasing quest. And there are another place in Scripture that says pray without ceasing. Pray and act. Pray and act. The second thing I want you to do is this. Wendy got ready to leave. Wendy had to work today, and she got ready to leave. And she called me as she was pulling out. She said, oh, Jerry, have you seen the roses? Right now, the flowers are blooming all over my yard. Roses, 
some beautiful deep purple irises and I've got just remarkable color and some things are white and it's just all blooming It's springtime. I said, yeah. She said, they're a deep kind of crimson color and then they turn yellow. They do that. Found that rose bush years ago for a dollar, something like that. Rescued it, brought it back to life. Moved twice since then. Moved it with me both times. Split it out. It's on both sides of my house now. It's just doing it. It's doing what it does. If uh, Jesus is right, that rose bush, completely indifferent to the coronavirus, in God's very controlled universe, knew it was springtime. It's time to grow. It's time to bloom. That's what roses do in the spring. That's what they do. You have a choice. You can pray and act. You can watch the news and worry. You can pray and act. But I want you to do something very, just very real. So I want you to go. And if you could do it right now, I don't even know how to do this because technology, as all of you know, is not my deal. But if you can go take a picture out in your yard and just upload it to our live feed or of some things that are just doing what they do. And every time you do that, you're saying, God, if you clothe the lilies of the field, I think you've got me. My daffodils have come and gone. My tulips, they've come and gone. I've got amazing, beautiful irises, and I'll do this when I get home and upload some pictures. They, they'll be gone. Roses, they'll hang out all, all season if I trim them back right, and do what I need to do with them. But even the ones that have come and gone, God clothed them. I think that simple act, that simple reminder could be powerful. I want to pray for you, Father. Um, there is a lot to worry about. Right now, going through my mind are people in our church battling cancer. And here I am. I've never had cancer. And I'm telling them by your word not to worry. I understand to some degree how that could hit them. Right now, there are people who have lost a child. Perhaps they've miscarried and it's been secret and silent, painful. And I'm telling them not to worry 
when they try to get pregnant again. Lord, uh, Wendy and I have been through that. We have have watched our son go through multiple surgeries. And Lord, we have been anxious more than once because of Wendy's grandmother in a nursing facility in these times. And I'm telling my wife, and myself not to worry. We have small businesses that have now been closed for weeks. Teachers without students, doctors without patients. And we are told by your word not to worry. So, God, you are our Father above it all. And whatever's blooming by your design is. Help us not to worry. Father, you sent your son into the middle of this universe. And he took on our greatest problem, which is sin, and gave us Jesus himself on the cross. And Father, you defied the laws of this universe and raised him from the dead three days later. And while some think it ridiculous, we believe that. Help us not to worry. Jesus, we love you. Father, we thank you. Holy Spirit, slide in close. Come close and work. In your name we pray. And all God's people say, amen. Look forward to seeing your pictures as you upload them or we get them through some other post. Just really look forward to seeing how God is at work. We'll have a video to Lead us out. God bless you.